It goes beyond the highest star. It reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. That was a hymn written a little more than a hundred years ago, and Sometimes words are just beautiful. Sometimes there are words that just seem more powerful than other words. And, and, and that is true of, of worship. It, it just seems sometimes there are words that we say and that we sing that have this impact that, that others don't have. And I say that because there's been, as we've gone through Revelation up to this point, there's been a lot of bad news that's come with the apocalypse. But today, for many of us in this room, we can finally take a breath. We can finally breathe because the weight of the past few weeks of Revelation and the chapters that that we've looked at, it's beginning to lift. And and there's going to be a major shift that we see happen in Revelation chapter 19. There's a change. Because there's worship in Revelation 19, unhindered worship, loud worship. There's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a feast. There is victory in Revelation chapter 19. So I say, take a deep breath today as we jump into this chapter, and we're going to see what all the ruckus is about today. So John starts Revelation chapter 19 describing for us what he hears as a sound of worship in heaven. And he says this, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. That's Babylon we talked about last week. He has avenged the murder of his servants, and again their voices rang out, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. What John is describing here is God's judgment has finally taken place on Babylon, and heaven is on the verge of erupting. They're about to go crazy. And I love here, John doesn't describe for us what he sees in heaven. Rather, he describes for us what he, what he hears going on in heaven. He says he hears what sounds like a crowd, a vast crowd, and they're being anything but quiet. They're, they're loud, they're enthusiastic. In fact, he says that they were shouting. What were they shouting? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I love that word, Hallelujah which means praise the Lord. We say it all the time. But did you know what it meant? You know, I I love this word. It's an Old Testament word being used here. In fact, fact, there's, there's so much power in this word hallelujah that it is not used at all in the New Testaments of our Bible except for right here in Revelation chapter 19. It's used four times. Just the word hallelujah. And I I love this word because it's kind of like a a universal 
word that's spoken. So if you travel to Brazil and you know how they pronounce the word hallelujah in Portuguese? Hallelujah. If you go to India with one of our missions teams, you know how they pronounce the word hallelujah in India? Hallelujah. It is a universal word. And, and I love this because it goes beyond race, it goes beyond language, it even goes beyond time and space. This, this word, hallelujah, it's a word that unites heaven and earth in praise all together. Hallelujah. There's such power, there's such meaning in, in this word that it's reserved for this moment in time that John is speaking of, and it say, he says there's a crowd in heaven, and they are shouting it, hallelujah. You know, I, I hesitate to even try to describe what this might have been like, and, and this won't even do it justice, but maybe the, the only thing I could think that, that this might sound like is, is picture a giant stadium filled with a bunch of Pastor Eric's, all witnessing the game-winning field goal of the Cleveland Browns in the Super Bowl. Can you imagine the chaos, the dancing, the screaming, the yelling that would go on in that place? It would be deafening. And the same thing is happening in heaven. Only difference is they aren't cheering for a game. They are cheering shouts for the Lord and what he has just accomplished and the judgment that has just taken place. In fact, John tells us in these three verses exactly why they are cheering hallelujah. He goes on to say, what, what, what they're saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord, because of their salvation, because of glory, because of power that belong to God. They're shouting hallelujah because God's judgments are true and just. They're, they're shouting because he's just punished the great prostitute Babylon. They are shouting because they said he is avenged the murder of his servants, those people who, whose blood has been shed following Jesus Christ have finally been avenged, and they can't help but shout hallelujah. All of this stuff here he lists is worth praising and shouting hallelujah for because justice has finally been served. And we get that, right? Because all of us love justice. We want justice. When things in this life go wrong and we see wrongdoing, we demand justice be paid. When we see evil, when we see suffering, we want justice. And here we see God, he finally gives his justice his judgments that we read in the previous chapters, they are justified. In fact, this proves to us that God is loving, that he is just, that he is true. We, as Christ followers, should not apologize for worshiping God because of this. It is right for us to worship him because of this. And the people in heaven, the crowd, were about to explode. Hallelujah, they shouted. But then John tells us the choir grows larger and it grows louder yet. Look at these next couple of verses. He says, Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. And they cried out, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least 
to the greatest. What we see here is at once all God's people joining together from the least to the greatest, all coming together with one voice, with one mind, in agreement, shouting hallelujah. This is when when humans and angels unite in, in mind and in heart in our adoration and our worship of Jesus. You know, verse 4, he highlights something there. He says, they cried out, Amen. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I love that he added that word, Amen. We say it all the time. Did you know what it means? It means that we agree. It means let it be so. We say Amen all the time in church together. It's a a symbol of unity, of togetherness. That is why we, we... We sing on the weekends together. It isn't because we want to show off talented musicians. It isn't because we want to highlight Jeremy's gifts or abilities. It isn't because it's tradition and you always sing at church. That is not why we sing. We sing because it demonstrates unity. It demonstrates togetherness. When we sing, we are saying we agree with one another and we agree with what has been said. Let it be so. And so we say amen. You hear, you hear that word sometimes at the end of a prayer. Someone prays and they say in Jesus' name, amen. And in fact, sometimes when we pray corporately together, you'll even hear the person praying say, and all God's people said, and we all say together, amen. We do that to show that we are in agreement with one another. We are unified Let it be so. Sometimes when the preacher says something that you are in agreement with, you might even hear someone from the congregation shout, Amen, indicating, I agree with you. Let it be so what has been said. You know, we can disagree on a lot of stuff in this life, and that's okay. But the one thing at the end of the day, that we can never be divided on, that we can never disagree on, that we can never not be in unity on, is our worship for God. Amen? You know, it's it's together with one voice that we declare as a church, hallelujah. And on this topic... There is no separation because we join together, not just believers in this room, not just with believers around the world, but we join together with the choirs of heaven declaring hallelujah, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Because it's, it's with one voice, with one goal, with one purpose, for one God that we sing. And then we hear this happening in heaven. In fact, John Piper, he says it like this. He says, corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of this world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways, and we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. Amen? You know, this is such an important topic, worship, 
that as we've looked at our vision 2023 and we said we want to grow deeper, one of the things we want to grow deeper in is our worship. And so we've, we've offered uh, this class that's been put together called The Why of Worship. And it's going to be happening here in September at our Port Clinton campus. And in fact, our worship leaders from our three campuses are going to be teaching this class. They've been working hard on it, and it's, and it's going to be fantastic. So hopefully this is a class you can jump in and dive deeper on. You can text that word, Why Worship, to the number, or you can go to the website, get connected through our events page if you would like to take this class. I highly recommend it. So John is saying... All right, we're saying hallelujah, praise the Lord, for God's judgments are just. And where he's saying not only are they singing hallelujah and shouting it, but they are together in unity, in unison, with one voice declaring that. But then he goes on once again to say the volume goes up another notch. Why? Because there's a wedding feast that's about to happen. Listen to what he goes on to say. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He says, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. John tells us in this that the volume in heaven elevates to a point that he can't even adequately describe. The only words that he has to describe this is that of mighty ocean waves or thunder. The volume in heaven over the worship going on would be deafening at this point. And truly, I want to stop for a moment because in that verse, we see a major shift take place in worship. Because you'll notice that the people now, they're no longer worshiping God for what he has done. It shifts and they begin worshiping him for who he is and what he is going to do. The worship in verse 6 here, it points forward. It doesn't point backward anymore. It points towards anticipation of the wedding and the feast. I mean, look at the verse one more time. He says, this sounded like mighty ocean waves, the crash of a loud thunder. He said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Present tense is happening. He reigns. This is a big shift. It's a shift because from the very beginning of our Bibles in Genesis all the way up to Revelation 19, verse 5, one verse before this, there is a picture that is happening. All the way from the beginning to Revelation 19, 5, we see this thing happening. It all started in the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? And they sinned. And there was a brokenness. Their relationship with each other was broken. Their relationship with God was broken. There was a closeness with God that was completely severed. And what do we see Adam and Eve do as a result? They hid. They're hiding. Why? Because of shame, guilt, fear. All of those things consumed them that they had never felt before, and they hid from God. It was a brokenness, a devastation that the world has been experiencing 
ever since all the way through Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. But then comes verse 6. And in verse 6, we see a picture of all of God's people, all of them together, all the sinners together in one place for a feast, a wedding feast. Only now in this place described, there's no hiding anymore. There's no guilt or shame or fear anymore. All of that is gone in verse 6. In fact, to borrow these words from from, uh, Pastor Paul Tripp, he said, these sinners are celebrating because the bond that was broken in the garden has been restored. They have been wed to their Savior forever. Forever they will be in his presence. Never again will they be separate from him. Never again will they hide. Never again will they be driven away. Their fellowship will never end. The sound of their celebration will never grow quiet. You know, many times throughout Scripture, we as Christ followers, the church, are described as the bride, the bride of Christ. And in this passage, we see the long-awaited day is marked with the Lord Jesus and his bride finally coming together to be wed. And this occasion is worth rejoicing, and heaven celebrates to the point, John says, that it erupts and will be loud like mighty ocean waves or thunder. So we say hallelujah in unison because things are going to be restored like they were meant to be. No more fear or hiding. I I love chapter 19, and I love how chapter 19 ends. It's the beginning of the end. It ends how we would want the Bible to end. It ends how we long for it to end. So uh, John Piper, he sets us up here in his commentary, and he says two appearances of Christ happen. One is called the appearance of grace. The other is called the appearance of glory. And what God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming of Christ, his glory will complete in our lives through the second coming. You see, the first coming of, of Jesus was marked by humility and grace But his return here in chapter 19 is marked with with glory. And I love that John stops describing what he's hearing in heaven and he begins describing for us what he sees in heaven because he sees a vision of Christ in all of his glory. And I'm telling you, there will not be a more glorious description of our coming king in the entirety of our Bibles. And this is what John says he saw as heaven opened. A white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. You see, Jesus had come riding on a donkey, but now he comes on a white horse. Jesus had a crown of thorns, and now it says he was wearing many crowns. Jesus had come a life once marked with 
humility and meekness, but now he comes a life marked with this majesty and power. He had come, uh, Jesus, uh, no one accepted him as a Messiah. He was rejected, but now, now he comes being recognized by all. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is Messiah. He had come to seek and save the lost, but now he's coming as a judge, a king of this world to rule. He had come as God incognito, but now he comes in all of his splendor. This is Jesus in all of his glory. And as we read this, it should overwhelm our hearts with awe and worship for who he is and what he has done. Because Jesus is going to take his position and he will defeat the enemy. This is what John describes here as Armageddon. I highlight this because this battle that, that John describes is, is actually, um, his description will be longer than the battle takes place. But let's read what John says. He says, I saw a beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. What a description of, of this victory. I'm telling you that because this battle, if you were expecting a 12-round fight, you're going to be disappointed. Don't waste your money on the pay-per-view. It's over way too fast. It, it, it's not worth it. In fact, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, he says this. He said, let me cut to the chase. Before anyone on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. Because when God determines the end has come, it's curtains. I've wondered, don't they know? I mean, I mean, the Bible isn't hidden. Satan and his evil accomplices, they have to know how it's going to end. So why do, why do they keep fighting? I think it's because they're plagued with the same thing that we're plagued with. Pride and a rebellious heart. Because it's our pride that causes us to not fall at the feet of Jesus. It is our rebellious heart that keeps us from worshiping him and giving him full control. It is our pride and, and, and our rebellious heart that keeps us from utterly just giving ourselves to him as king and giving him all the worship. It is pride and rebellion that keeps us from that. So I wonder, as Christ followers in this room, what do we do? How do we handle this, and how do we move forward? Well, let me, let me share a couple things with you, because we have to be prepared. John tells us that the bride is prepared. And as the bride, we want to be prepared. And so I believe Revelation has been a roadmap for us on how we can be Prepared, And so let me give you a couple of ways, and, and there are many more. But one way I want to share with you we can be prepared is 
by enduring hardship and remaining faithful. Remember in chapter 13, John wrote, God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. He warned us of this, that we were going to have to endure and remain. In fact, Dr. Bobby Gupta, he, he shared with us that weekend the importance of this, the importance of trusting God through these things, trusting him when stuff doesn't make sense, trusting him when we're being persecuted, trusting him when, when we're hurting. Do we trust the Lord? Because Psalm 91 says this, I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He's my God and I trust him. Do I trust him when things don't make sense or when I'm hurting? Because I have to if I'm going to remain faithful and if I'm going to endure. And, that, and John says this is one way we can prepare for that day. The second way that John says we can prepare is by obeying God. He says you obey him by taking the gospel to all the tribes and the languages and people and nations. That is our job. God has given us that. To go and tell others about Jesus. We're his plan A. There is no plan B. We, it's up to us to share that. Matthew 28 said, go and make disciples. That is up to us to tell others the good news about Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they won't hear. And that starts right here in our community with our families and then expands out. So we want to be prepared for the wedding day. Well, okay, endure, remain faithful, but obey. Go and tell others. And then there's a last one. And this one, um, I might have made up. It is, could we live lives remembering that the victory is ours? Why as Christ followers do we, do we live lives of, of a lack of joy and a lack of love and discouragement, and fear, anxiety, and worry, and disappointment, and we mope around like, like we're defeated. We are anything but defeated. We have victory in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin, and we are on his side. So we should live lives Marked with victory, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things should just, just escape us so others know, man, there's something different about them. The things that tend to drag us down, they, they're doing great. We live lives recognizing that we have victory in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're going to have work to do, and it's going to be hard and we're going to face difficulties. So until that day comes that John describes in Revelation chapter 19, let me encourage you with this. Remain faithful. Endure. Trust Him. Work hard. Obey. And above all, always, always, let's be unified in our worship of the One who is worthy so that we, with one voice in unity, can declare hallelujah, praise the Lord, the one who is, who was, and is still to come.
Why don't we close our services declaring that together today? Stand with me and let's sing.